Make your heart skip a beat. Look at that. Um, I don't know what that meant. It's going to get on my nerves. Thank you, sir. Love the opportunity to share this message on this particular passage. Before we get started, just go ahead and turn your Bibles, your good old-fashioned paper Bibles. I said that yet? To the book of Philippians. Before we get started into it, into our passage today, how about this book of Philippians? Anybody just really been impressed by this book? Man, it's good stuff. We're going to spend, uh, we're going to focus today on chapter 4. Verses 14 through 20. <clears throat> and just love the practicality of the Apostle Paul, the practicality of the Holy Spirit, to follow the vein of thought of this book to this point is just amazing. Uh, just, if you go through the, the themes of the chapters and kind of watch the way that he weaves everything together and then he comes to this at the end, which is amazing to me. Um, and I think when we get through with it, you'll understand a little bit more what I'm talking. I'm shaking this morning. Got got to the biggest part of the song right there, and dun 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 dun, and my thumb just locks up, and I can't feel my pick, and I can't. So I had to stop and kind of do this. I don't know what's going on. I'm not nervous. I lost all my pride years ago, but okay. Philippians chapter four. Let me read. Uh, 14 through 20. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, Your Word is perfect. It restores our souls. It is living water to us. And like the body of Jesus, it is food for us. But these natural human minds cannot comprehend what You have for us. We need Your Spirit to speak, to teach, to instruct. And the good news is, Jesus said that's exactly what He would send the Spirit to do. So God, we ask You, teach us by the power of Your Holy Spirit as we look into Your Word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Money. Money. What do you think about money? What do you think of? We got, I got a couple thumbs up up here. I got some people who are like, oh no, we're in church and they're going to talk about money. 
What is your opinion of money? How does it make you feel? Money is definitely an emotional subject, isn't it? Anybody feel no emotions when you say the word money? Anybody get mad when you think about money? Sad? Happy? Uh, there's not very many heads shaking when you say that. <clears throat> okay, we're going to talk about money today. And up front, Jesus Christ never once apologized for talking about money. Not once. And I think we do a great disservice to you, to the church, and to the Word of God when we apologize for talking about money. There's no apologies this morning. Um, this is fantastic stuff. And it's about money. So, let's start out with a little true or false quiz. Now listen, I don't want you to... Uh, there are speakers who will manipulate their audience and exalt themselves over them by giving them embarrassing questions to answer wrong before they start talking. I've done that before. It works, by the way. I say that to say, don't answer out loud to these questions. Just answer them right here, because uh, you're probably going to be wrong. True or false? Five questions. Okay. Don't don't raise your hand. Don't shake your head. You can write it down if you want to. Okay. But true or false? Now again, don't answer these questions except in your head, because I'm gonna watch you. True or false? Money is evil? That's question one. Question two, true or false? Money is the root of all evil. Somebody nod their head, by the way. I saw you. True or false? The Bible doesn't talk much about money. Number four, you shouldn't talk about money in church. Now, I've already answered that one for you. So. And the last one, true or false, money can buy happiness. Now, I'm going to give you the answers. You can score yourself mentally. Now, remember, five questions, how many points are each question worth? 20 points, so you can't miss many and pass this test. So, okay, okay. And I know some of you are actually sitting there saying, well, you can't really answer these whether they're true or false because there's so many shades of gray here. And, but you're, you're right about that. But let me answer them as best as I think that I can. Okay. Number one, money is evil. The answer is false. Money is amoral. It doesn't have any morals, right? We used to have paper money, kids, if y'all can believe it. People used to carry around pieces of paper and coins in their pocket. Now it's just numbers on a screen, so that paper, those numbers can't be good or evil. Money in and of itself is amoral. It can be used for good or evil, but it is neither. So that answer was false. Money is evil, false. Question number two. Money is the root of all evil. The answer is false. You say, but there's a, there's a verse. You're right, there is a verse. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So, money's not the root of all evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. So the answer to that question is, False. See a pattern developing, right? The Bible doesn't talk much about money. Question three. The answer is false. 
This one's really pretty easy. And now let me just give you a few statistics to prove that that answer is false. Are you ready for this? This is pretty cool. One out of every six verses that record the sayings of Jesus is on the subject of money. One out of six. That's a lot. All those red letters in your red letter Bibles, one out of six of them is about money. So that's that's quite a bit. Of the 38 parables Jesus spoke, 16 of them, or nearly half, deal directly with money. So that's a lot, right? Jesus spoke more about money than He did about heaven, hell, and salvation all combined together. So that's a lot, right? You can answer now. Yes, that is a lot, okay? And finally, listen, for every verse on prayer in the Bible, there are four verses about money. Now, is prayer important? Yes, you can answer. Yes. The answer is yes. Is prayer important? Yes. So if there's four times the amount of verses about money that there is about prayer, is there a lot in the Bible about money? So the answer to the question was false. So the Bible does talk a lot about money. Number four, you shouldn't talk about money in church. The answer is false. If the Bible talks about it that much and we're going to preach and teach the Bible, you're going to talk about money. And you're going to talk about it a lot, actually. Number five, money can buy happiness. Everybody's like, false. The answer is actually true. And I did that just to mess with you. But I'm going to tell you why it's true before we get finished today. Okay? Money can buy happiness. I know you might say, what? But hear me out. Now, I read an article in Forbes magazine. Anybody know, familiar with Forbes magazine? I'm not because I don't have enough money to worry about Forbes magazine. But, but let me tell you what they said about the possibility of money buying happiness. The title of the article is, quote, to buy happiness, spend money on other people. That's the name of the article. In it, it says that there's a book called Happy Money, The Science of Smarter Spending. And here, authors Elizabeth Dunn and Michael Norton draw on years of quantitative and qualitative research to explain how money can buy happiness, but only if we spend it in certain ways. Now, here's what they say. I'm setting the tone for something. The key lies in adhering to five key principles. First, buy experiences. If you're trying to buy happiness, buy experiences. Research shows that material purchases are less satisfying than vacations or concerts. You ever been happy on a vacation? You probably paid for that vacation one way or the other. So you're kind of buying happiness. So buy experiences, not things. Second thing is make it a treat. Limit your access to your favorite things. That way you'll keep appreciating them. My favorite illustration for this is those white chocolate covered Oreos. Can I get an amen? Can I get a witness about the white fudge covered Oreos? Yes, thank you very much. They only come out around this time of year. Now, if they were out all the time, I don't know that I'd appreciate them as much. So buy smart and you can buy happiness. You know, make it a treat. By the way, my birthday is 12-12. White fudge covered Oreos would be a great idea for you to share with my wife is all I'm saying since she's not in the room. Yeah. Okay, the third one is buy time. Focusing on time over money yields wiser purchases. Buy things that will save you time. We live in a culture full of labor-saving devices, right? 
But be careful because sometimes those labor-saving devices take more time than they're worth. So be careful with that one. Pay now, consume later is the fourth principle. Delayed consumption leads to increased enjoyment. That makes sense. You're just you're building anticipation, and that makes you happy when you finally get to enjoy. And the last one is, and here you go, invest in others. And they say that spending money on other people makes us happier than spending it on ourselves. Anybody agree with that? Okay. Y'all wake up in a minute. The author goes on to quote a professor from Harvard Business School. Now, you want to find a liberal school in America, go to Harvard Business School, okay? And this is what the, the professor from Harvard Business School says. We've shown in our research that giving money to others actually does make people happier. One of the reasons is that it creates social connections. If you have a nice car and a big house on an island all by yourself, you're not going to be happy. Why? Because we need people to be happy. But by giving to another person, the quote goes on to say, you're creating a connection and a conversation with that person and those things are really good for happiness. Now, how do you feel about that? Let me ask you the question again. Can you buy happiness? Yeah, I think you can. Now, if Harvard Business School and Forbes magazine says that we can buy happiness, do you think we have a higher standard that we could look to? You think that maybe the Bible might teach us that times a million? And you may not agree with it, but I think it can at least bring up some interesting points as we look into our text today. Can money buy happiness? How should we handle money as God's people? Let's see what we can learn from Paul's letter. Let me read the passage again. I think it's important to get repetition. It gets it in your heart. Put it in front of your eyes if you possibly can. Philippians 4, 14-20 again. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, our outline this morning, I I do like a three-point alliterated outline. The power of money, the passion of money, the pacifier of money. I I love that. We don't have that this morning. Okay, it's just not there. I didn't want to dissect the text and, and make it into something manageable. We're going to follow the flow of the text, and it, it looks like this. There's four points, okay? The first one is context and history. Verses 14 through 16 give us the context and history of what we're going to talk about. Verse 17 is the second point, and I think it's the main thought of this passage. So that second point is the main thought. Third point is the result or the outcome in verses 18 through 20. And then the fourth point will be application. It's pretty simple, right? So first point is context and history. Second point is the main thought. Third point is the result or outcome. And the fourth point will be our application. So as we work through these verses and a few other ones from different places, we'll see if we can't find a way to buy us some happiness. You ready? 
You can answer that question. Thank you very much. First, let's look at point number one, which is the context and history that Paul brings into. I'm going to read it again, 14 through 16 only. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now let's set the context. Paul has just written to them that he has learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance and situation. That's what you looked at last week. The secret was what? We said at the beginning of the message, or at the beginning of the music. What was the secret that Paul had learned? Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through Him or through Christ that strengthens me. That was the secret that he had learned, right? Everybody say yes. Thank you very much. His faith was in Jesus' ability to provide the grace he needed not only to withstand, but to flourish in whatever came his way. And again, I don't care what the world throws at me now. It's going to be all right. That's what Paul was saying. But he definitely wants the Philippians to know that he appreciates their helping him out. So he starts and he says, Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. He sees this... Now what? Wait just a second. Let's set context again. Where is Paul when he's writing this letter again? Starts with a P. Thank you. It's not jail, it's prison. He's in prison. And he says, I know the sufficiency of Christ to get me through the situation, but I also appreciate the kindness of God's people. Now, what Paul says next is really, really surprising to me. Listen to verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Now, he's going back to when he saw them the first time. Okay? Acts 13 and 14 describe Paul's first missionary journey when he went in a circuit along the Mediterranean coast and came back to Antioch, which is where he left from. Acts chapter 15 depicts the beginning of his second trip And then Acts chapter 16 tells of Paul's initial visit to Philippi. And then chapter 17, he leaves Philippi and goes into Thessalonica and then Berea and certain other places. Now, it is this part of his ministry that he's talking about here. So when I first left you Philippians on my second missionary journey and I went into Thessalonica, no other church gave support to me. You say, okay, well what's that mean? Listen. Let me give you a list of some of the places where Paul had labored and established churches up to this point through a missionary journey and a half, basically. Seleucia, Salamis, Paphos, Perga, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and there are others. But you've got these places, out of all of these places where Paul had invested himself, risked his life, how many of these places helped him out? The answer starts with a Z and rhymes with Nero, and you can look at it here. Zero. None of these places helped him out. None of these places entered into ministry with him by giving and receiving. None of them. And Paul emphasizes this by the way that he says it. He says, you guys were the only... He didn't just say, you guys were the only ones to help me, but he says it like this purposefully. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. That's a huge statement. The negative emphasis first makes the, 
the, the negative emphasis first, no other church entered into, makes the positive emphasis more emphatic. No other church entered into partnership. No other church entered in partnership with me except you only. So he's pulling them out specifically and saying, you're the only ones. Now, to make this even more amazing, Paul gives us some alarming details about the Philippian church when he describes them to the Corinthian church. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. I should hear pages turning. See? Come on. Y'all know I'm just playing, right? If you've got a labor-saving device that you can just pick on, that's all right. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And what he's going to do is describe to the Corinthians the situation of the Philippians. Now, Corinth was a very wealthy city, cosmopolitan city, metropolitan area, and very wealthy. Okay? Let's listen to what he says to the wealthy Corinthians about the Philippians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. We want you to know, brothers, talking to the Corinthians, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Now, Macedonia is where Philippi was. Just don't want to jump over that. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord. Now listen to this. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Wow. What? Wow. Spell that backwards. Wow. Wow. Let me recap that. The Macedonian churches included the Philippians here, and the collection was for the impoverished saints in Jerusalem. Now, this is a different giving opportunity here. This is not giving to Paul. The saints back in Jerusalem were suffering persecution and poverty, and what happens is these poor Philippians raise their hands and jump out of their seat and say, please, let us help relieve the impoverished saints in Jerusalem. A severe test of affliction, extreme poverty, giving beyond their means. Severe, extreme, beyond. These are words that show that the Philippians were not in what we would call a good position to give when they gave. Now what was this severe test of affliction? What had caused their extreme poverty? Now, we don't know for sure, but let me just, and I hate the give scenario. What, what if it was this? But I think I think we can determine what it was through history. Is it possible that their conversions had led to their being turned out of the marketplace? Remember Lydia? Remember when we talked about Lydia, the fashionista, who was the first convert in Philippi? This has been a long time ago. Months ago. This is before we even merged. Anybody remember that? Okay, two people. That's a good track record. No, that's it's hard. I thought, that was, seriously, that was like April, March or April of this year. Because, again, before we merged. But Lydia was a wealthy lady. She sold purple fabrics is what the Scripture says. And it said that she came from another place to Philippi to sell her wares. So it was, 
What I said was it was like she had a house in Paris and a house in New York and she went back and forth from one to the other selling her wares, this wealthy fashionista. Now, what happened to the wealth of Lydia? I'll tell you what probably happened. When she would go to the marketplace to sell her wares and she wouldn't burn incense to the local deity, guess who couldn't sell her wares anymore? Lydia. So she probably lost her livelihood. What about the Philippian jailer who was a part of the Roman cohort? who would no longer say that Caesar was God. You think that he possibly lost his post? You say Caesar is God or you will lose your job. And he says, well, I can't do that anymore because I know only Jesus is God. There's only one true God and Caesar's not him. You think that might have caused their poverty? It certainly is probable. Okay? And not just them, but the other members of the church. Their Christianity had cost them their place in society. It had cost them their very livelihood. And this led to poverty. But not just poverty, extreme poverty. Their giving hurt. Think widow's might here. Think we've only got a couple of copper coins, but we're going to give everything we've got. That's what kind of giving we're talking about here. It literally means being destitute. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, it's the same Greek word. It's patokos. P-T-O-C-H-O-S. And it means empty-handed, crouching beggar. It means if you don't give me something, I have nothing. That's the kind of poverty that Paul's talking about that the Philippians encountered. And they jump up and say, please let us help by giving our money. But in the midst of this poverty, he says in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that they begged for the favor of taking part in the giving to the saints. So here are a bunch of utterly poor believers begging Paul to let them give to help others out. And again, note that this is a separate occasion than the one Paul is talking about in Philippians. In Philippians, Paul says that they sent money to him to help him out in his needs once and again. So it wasn't just this one-time thing. They sent Paul some money. They sold something and said, here's the money from it. Once and again, they sent him money, and then they're still volunteering to give to the needs of the saints. In 2 Corinthians, it's a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. So we see a pattern of sacrificial giving from the poorest of the poor. The poorest church he dealt with had the most consistent pattern of voluntary sacrificial giving. Which kind of takes every excuse we've got for not giving. Well, I don't have the money. Well, neither did they. So, that's point one, our history and context. Now, with that in mind, we can move on to what I think is the main point or thought of the passage, which is going to give us firm ground to launch from as we look at how we can give, why we should give, and the hope that our giving provides for us. Look at verse 17 back in Philippians 4. Paul says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul is glad to have received help from the Philippians, but not only for his good. 
He says that he seeks not only that good for himself, but the fruit that increases to their credit. Now I believe contained in this is an explanation of the secret of the Philippian giving and as a result, the only thing that can and will motivate our giving. Now, before we get too far into this thought pattern, let me ask you a question. How do you feel when someone begins teaching or preaching on giving? Is there an eye roll, either literal or mental? Is there guilt? Do you think, this is why I don't go to church, they're always trying to hijack my wallet? I've heard stuff like that, guys. Is there any discomfort at all when somebody in church starts talking about giving, specifically to the church? I think what we see here can alleviate all of that, every bit of it. We've done a poor job of teaching about giving and an even poorer job at showing that money is as much about worship as music or prayers or Bible reading are. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to lay up treasures where? We are to lay up treasures in heaven. And though this does not mean that we need to send our money up ahead of us into heaven, because you can't do that, right? It does mean that our money is not meant to hold us here. And I think the Philippians knew this. Much in the same way that Paul had learned to be content by actually going through so many different circumstances, the Philippians' fiery trial had made them empathetic to the plight of the poor. Because again, think about Lydia, who had been rich. And maybe she's not, maybe she's gone at this point. Maybe she's not even there. But think if she's still there. And she's destitute and poor after having been rich. How do you think she's going to feel when word gets back that the saints in Jerusalem are suffering from poverty? Well, hate their luck. I'm suffering too. I don't think that, again, you, you don't see that as being the Philippians' attitude. It's like, I know how that feels. I know that it hurts to be in poverty. Let me see if we can't help them out. They knew poverty and they knew the hardship that it brought. So they would seek to alleviate poverty if they could. Having realized that physical money was temporal because they had lost theirs, they invested in what was eternal. And let me ask you a question. What is eternal? This is where if you're in a Sunday school class, a kid goes, Jesus! And that's true. What is eternal? How can we lay up treasures in heaven? Because again, that's, that's really what I believe the Philippians were doing. Let me read you a quote. Now, get a hold of this guy's accreditation. His credentials are fantabulous. Pat Neff is his name. He's the former governor of Texas. He's the former president of Baylor University and former president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Wow. That's pretty, that's impressive. Doggone it. Everybody clap for Pat Neff. No, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Let me read this quote that he gave to the Southern Baptist Convention when he was president. Listen. All my life I have heard preachers tell their congregations to lay up treasures in heaven, but none has ever told me exactly how to get my treasures into heaven. I had to figure it out for myself. He goes on to say, the only way to get our treasures into heaven is to put them into something that is going to heaven. Cattle, lands, 
houses, stocks and bonds, oil, coal, and the like are not going to heaven. Therefore, if I am to lay up treasures in heaven, I must put them to work in the mighty task of redeeming souls that will be fit for heaven. What's he saying? If we are to invest in what is lasting, we must invest our money into people. You say, not my money. Yes, your money. God's people. Lost people who need to know Jesus. And where do we have the opportunity to invest this money like this? It's not a trick question. What better place than your local church? This is not a pledge drive. This is not a ramp up giving at the end of the year type speech. If I'm going to invest my money in people who are going to be fit for the kingdom of heaven, where is the best place that I can do that? It's right here. It's in your local church. And I believe that's where we have to start. Okay? And I'm not going to get into the 10% pre-tax, post-tax. It's not what I'm talking about. To me, all of that is moot when we see the secret that the Philippians learn. We invest our money in people through the local church. If you don't think your church or our church is helping to build people into properly functioning citizens of the kingdom, then invest your money in some place that it is. Of course, if you're not in a place where you feel like that's happening, you, you either need to try to fix it or get out of there either way. I wholeheartedly believe that the Philippians knew firsthand how productive Paul was and how God was using him to reach people. So when they saw that he needed finances to proceed in his ministry, they were more than eager to send their money to him, knowing it would bring a return in eternity for him, the people he was ministering to, and also ultimately a return for them in eternity. If you could turn $1 into $10, would you do it? Absolutely. And I believe the Philippians saw this opportunity to say our meager little offering can be multiplied in the hands of Paul through the power of the Holy Spirit as he invests his life in people all over the Roman world and our meager little offering can bloom and explode. That's fantastic here, but what's happening for them is in heaven, their fruit is... It's multiplying in heaven to last eternally in their account. Who's got an account in heaven right now? Will is the only person that's got an account in heaven here this morning. I've got an account in heaven. If you are a born-again believer, you made an initial deposit of your soul when you were born again. And you opened an account in heaven. Is that account growing? It should be. And you know how it's going to grow? As you invest your money, your time, and your resources building people into kingdom citizens. That means evangelism. That means discipleship. That means sitting down and crying with somebody who's crying. But what we're talking about here specifically is the Philippians gave their money and their account was growing. And I really wholeheartedly believe they knew that. And they wanted to move past the temporal into the eternal. 
Paul rejoiced that they understood this and said that he loved that thought more than the physical blessing they had sent to him. His joy was knowing that they were going to be eternally blessed because of how they had invested their meager means. They didn't have much, but they knew and Paul knew that God would use that terrible little and turn it into a terrific lot. And this knowledge thrilled Paul for them. Just like Paul had learned the secret of being content, they had learned the secret of giving, even in poverty. Because what they were investing was multiplying in eternity in their account. You say, well, that's selfish. No, it's not. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. You say, well, that's not talking about money. It's included in it. That's not the main context of what Jesus was saying there. But if I can take my money and invest it in people and I start to see fruit come as a result of that, what has happened? I've turned my little $5 into eternal blessings for somebody else. And God credits that to my account in heaven. You say, well, if I just have Jesus, I'll be all right in heaven. No, you won't. You say, no, wait a second. What I'm saying is every mention of Scripture about the judgment shows whether we have something to present to God or not. You say, well, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. He is. But heaven is going to be a place where we are rewarded according to what we've done here on earth. And Jesus is enough of a reward, but God loves us so much He wants to reward us with even more than just Jesus. Does that make sense? That's that's hard. Okay? Well, if I, you know, I'd... I don't need a mansion on the hill and I don't even have to see my loved ones as long as I can just be with Jesus. That's true. But that also becomes an excuse for us to go hide our talents. And what did Jesus say to the man who hid his one talent? You wicked, worthless, lazy slave. Take what he has and give it to the one who turned the five into ten. God expects you to multiply your treasure while you're here and send it on ahead into heaven. Don't be lazy with what God's given you. The Philippians weren't. So, having seen the history and context of their giving and seeing the main thought of this passage, which again, is that their fruit was increasing in heaven. That motivated their giving. Let's look at the results of all this. This is going to be verses 18 through 20 in chapter 4. Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I believe there's three clear results mentioned here. First, Paul's needs were met. That's, you know, Paul had a need. The Philippians saw it. They met it, so Paul's needs were met. When he received their offering, it was all he had. Remember, he said no other church had shared with him in giving and receiving. And here he sits in prison, hopeless and helpless, when Epaphroditus shows up and says, Hey Paul, the Philippians knew you were in need and they wanted to help you again. Paul was blessed to the point to know that they wanted to meet his needs. So Paul's needs were met. And he says that he had received full payment and more and that he was well supplied. That's one result. Second, the Philippians secured provision for themselves by giving. Look at verse 19. 
popular verse, often misquoted, says that God will supply every need of the of theirs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now listen to what Paul's saying, I believe, in this vein of thought. Essentially, he's saying, since you've cared for my needs by giving more than you were able to, God will provide your needs. You need not worry. God will bless you with everything you need. By caring for what God cared about, the Philippians were now guaranteed provision from God Himself. Now this is not prosperity gospel. Sow a seed and it will come back a hundredfold. He said, God will supply your what? Need. Seed and need or something like that. We're not going to go on the seed thing. Note the tone of the verse. Paul doesn't say God might or God can, but God will supply. And supply what? Every need of yours. And how will He supply it? According to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. There can be no greater encouragement than that. God will supply every need you have according to the riches that He has in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, let me ask a probing question. What kind of tipper are you? Well, it depends on what kind of service I get. That's a good answer, by the way. Do you try to get by with as little as you can? Or do you like to tip and help people out? You don't have to answer that out loud, by the way. If you have a lot of money, you can give out of your wealth. You could give a $20 tip and the waitress would be happy. But what if you, what if you were rich and you gave according to your wealth? Not according to the ticket, but according to your wealth. Say you were worth $2 million and you gave 20% of that. How happy would that waitress be? There's a difference between giving out of your wealth and giving according to your wealth. Are you tracking with me? We're on the same page? It doesn't say that God will give out of His riches. It says that God will meet their needs according to His riches. How rich is God? The answer is very. Very rich. And He is guaranteed, the Philippians here, that He will meet their needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus, in glory in Christ Jesus. There can be no greater encouragement than that. And it's a guarantee. A guarantee. Because they gave according to and even beyond their means. And finally, the ultimate outcome, there was two outcomes there. Paul's needs were supplied and provision for the Philippians was secured. And the third one is, God is glorified in all of this. Paul says in verse 18 that the Philippians' gift to him was actually a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And then in verse 20, he ascribes to God the glory that is due him for all of this. So Paul is helped, the Philippians are provided for, and God is glorified. That's what we call results. That's what we call fruit. So, now... Let's put all of this in perspective for us. That's our first three points. Now it comes home to us. Point four, application. What is the application for us today in southern West Virginia the Sunday before Thanksgiving in 2013? As it's 15 degrees outside. Just want to get as specific as I can. Now let me, let me share what I'm being called to as a result of being examined by this passage. I went into this passage to examine it and ended up examining me. 
Let me tell you what it showed me. First, let me see, let me count here. I think there's four points of application here. See, see how it hits you, because it's, it's got me by the throat. Thank you very much. First, I have to see where my heart is regarding money and giving. And that's tricky. I really wrestled, and thankfully I'm still wrestling with the order of Jesus' words when He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He said that in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6 of Matthew. Do I send my treasure ahead and then my heart will follow? Or do I pray and work to get my heart right and then I'll supernaturally allocate my money properly? Which is it? Do I walk in obedience and trust that my heart will follow my obedience? Or do I get down on my face and say, God, help me to want to give. Help me to want to give. Help me to want to give. And then I start giving. What do you think? I think it's both as a cop-out answer because I don't know what the answer is. I think it has to be both and at different times of our lives it's, it's, it's different ones. But I believe I have to be willing to be obedient even when I don't feel like it. I mean, that's a Christian life, right? I don't feel like getting up on Monday morning and going to work. But I do it. Right? Some of you are like, no, I don't, I don't. <laughs> I do it. Um, money isn't to be my true treasure. But if I'm holding on to it greedily, it sure has a way of seeming like a treasure. It's mine, my own, my precious. So I have to give even when I don't feel like it. When I want to hold on to it. And there are, there are payday Fridays when I sit down to write that check that I drop in that box back there that I think I could really use this somewhere else. It would really be helpful if I didn't allocate this money to this place right now. That's when I need to give anyway. And I think when I send my treasure into that box, my heart will follow it. God loves a cheerful giver, but I need to give even when I'm not overflowing with joy about it. Send the treasure ahead, and I believe your heart will follow it. I believe that's what Jesus was saying. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Second point. Through this study, I've realized something revolutionary for me, and I mean that. I mean revolutionary. There is nothing wrong with receiving. That's not the revolutionary part. Everybody's like, yeah, I'm all about receiving. It's a good thing. Paul was thankful for what he received, but as good as receiving is, it pales in comparison to giving. Who likes to receive? Now, Christmas is coming. Who likes to receive gifts? I do. I enjoy receiving. And you know what Scripture teaches us? That it's good to receive, but it is even better to give. I have always seen these as mutually exclusive things. If I'm going to give, I can't receive. And I need to despise receiving if I'm going to give properly. And that's wrong thinking. It's stinking thinking. Receiving is good. It's good to receive things. We thank God for what... Listen, guys, when we were sitting in Cincinnati a week and a half into this thing with Lily and we got a check in the mail from you guys, it was good to receive that. It was a tremendous blessing. 
And we thanked God and we thanked you guys. And I'm just sitting there going, wow, that's a good thing. Don't feel bad about enjoying receiving. It's a good thing. But listen, there is something better. It is better to give than to receive. That's revolutionary to me. Because I always, I literally always thought, well, I might have to stop receiving if I'm going to give. No. You receive and you give, and then you start to realize, I enjoy giving more than I enjoy receiving. That's, that's, that's crazy revolutionary for me. And sometimes I've got to take God at His word, because sometimes I don't enjoy giving. But again, I send my treasure ahead, and then I start to see the fruit of it, and I start to feel the emotion of it, and I start to see the blessing in it later. And it is better than when I received something. Take it by faith. We don't have to stop receiving. We can enjoy receiving, but we get to enjoy the even greater blessing of giving. We really do get to have our cake and eat it too. It's blessing coming in, blessing going out. As I receive, I rejoice. And then as I give what I have received, I rejoice even more. And I'm still wrestling with this, but it is becoming more and more real to me every day. Next point flows out of that thought. Now listen, you want one that's going to hit you right here, hopefully hit you right here. We should beg to be able to give. Beg. Like a dog. On our knees. God, please give me an opportunity to give. Have you ever prayed that prayer? I have never prayed that prayer. It's a monstrous statement. Monstrous. We are inundated with requests for our time, our money, and our attention. And this can cause us to detest the thought of giving to anybody in a welfare culture. But whether we are rich or poor, we should be begging God to give us the opportunity to give. I am amazed at the way Paul says that the Philippians begged to help contribute to the needs of the saints. Again, they're not saying, hey... Can we send a little something to help you out, Paul? Get the picture. Please, please let us help here. Please let us help. We are begging you, give us the opportunity to help you, to help these saints that we've never even met. Please let us help them out. That should be our attitude toward giving. We should be begging God for the opportunity to give. They didn't just write a check and mail it out. They saw the need and they were desperate to help meet it. Again, it points back to knowing that it is a substantial blessing to give. And that can lead me to be vigilant in looking for opportunities to do just that. Instead of begging to receive, we need to beg to give. And there are... Be discerning in that as well because you've got opportunities to give all around you. Sit down and watch TV. You'll see commercials where beaten puppy dogs are looking at you. And you'll see kids in Africa with distended stomachs. And you'll see uh, different organizations that we don't like asking for your money. You have to be discerning. It's not just throwing money out there. It's seeing the need that's going to help equip people to be citizens of heaven that's going to return on, that's going to give you a return on investment in heaven. Beg for an opportunity to give and be discerning about who you give to. 
And finally, finally, the plain and simple truth of this passage is a beacon of hope for the Christian. Your giving guarantees both fruit in your eternal account and God's provision in the here and now. If I am truly investing my money, and yes, this passage is speaking specifically about money, if I'm investing my money to help accomplish God's will and purpose in people's lives, two big things happen. God will take care of my needs here. That's what He said okay, in Philippians 4. And He will oversee my eternal account and fill it to overflowing as well. It is a win-win situation. Others' needs are met. I am secure now and eternally. And God is glorified. How? By my giving. It's amazing. So, can money buy happiness? Absolutely. You can bet the farm on it. Literally. Don't despise giving. Don't neglect giving. And do not waste your opportunity to give. Invest it into the lives of those who are in need. Invest it into God's kingdom and God's purposes. And smile all the way to the bank as you do it. He who has promised is faithful. And He will bring it to pass. Let's pray. God, this is not a tough passage. I believe it's a great passage. I believe it's a powerful passage. And I believe it's really simple. Give, and it will come back to you. Press down, shaken together, running over, into your lap. And I believe that has present and future ramifications for us, God. God, I pray that You would make us individually and corporately into givers. Givers who know the blessing of giving. Givers who are desperate to meet the needs that we see in Your people, in Your kingdom. Give us the heart of the Philippians, God, who in their extreme poverty and fiery ordeal begged for the opportunity to meet the needs that they saw. And God, we need Your help. That's something only Your Holy Spirit can do. This is not about writing a bigger check. This is not about gritting our teeth and trying to do better. God, may it never be. It's about understanding that I have received everything I have from Your hands. I am Your steward, God, with my money, with Your money. Help me to treat it as such, God, and help me to be a giver by the power of Your Holy Spirit as Your Word transforms our minds and conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ. We desperately need Your help, God, especially in this season. Make us thankful and make us generous, God, because You are the greatest giver of all time. May we emulate You and follow Your example. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.